From the Shumway Theater in downtown Rockford, this is the Guilty Pleasures Podcast, presented by Rockford Writers Guild. Here is your host, Connie Koontz. Hi, everyone. It's Connie Koontz, and you are listening to the Guilty Pleasures Podcast. It's a bonus episode. It's number 10. Sharon Nesbitt Davis is with us in the Shumway studio once again. Hello, Sharon. Hello, Connie. Today, she's going to share from her memoir, In Progress Intended. Sharon, could you tell us a little bit about what you're going to be sharing today? This, yes, this is when I am in college. So it is 1971, and I am a, um, I'm a sophomore at Illinois State University. And it is also very soon after George and I have come together and are engaged. Okay, wonderful. After Sharon reads, we're going to have another interview with Sharon and also with Mr. George Davis. Yes. <laughs> with no further ado, let's go back in time to 1971. I'm a sociology major taking my first sociology class, and I know I need to change majors. I don't like the definition. Sociology is the study of the development, organization, functioning, and classification of human societies. I don't want to classify anyone. The first topic in our textbook is designed to get our attention. Dating, marriage, and sex. But what gets my attention is a subtopic, interracial dating and marriage. It is classified as deviant behavior. This is a scientific term. It deviates from the norm. I can accept that, but the professor explains that people who engage in this behavior have low self-esteem. Whites feel they can do no better, and blacks want to improve their low status. I suggest another possibility. What if they believe we are all one race? Because biologically, that is true. I hear a mean laugh behind me, and the professor looks up and shakes his head. I'm not sure if that was from me or the laughter. In theory, that is possible, but highly unlikely. My chest tightens, and I feel my face getting red. It's true for me and my fiancé. I am in the front row and do not turn around to see the reaction. I hear it. Whispers. Feet shifting. Someone makes a gagging sound, and someone else laughs. The professor says this is interesting and asks if I mind answering a few questions. This feels like a Twilight Zone nightmare, waking up in an insane asylum trying to prove I'm sane. The professor asks where I grew up, what my experiences have been with black people, what George's experience was with whites. Is he the first black man you dated? I tell them how I was raised and what happened in high school, and that I didn't date until college. And in college, I've dated both black and white. I don't talk about Jonas and the assault. I know how he would analyze that. Low self-esteem. No longer feel worthy of a white man. I tell them about George and what a good man he is. How smart and talented he is. How comfortable he is in his own skin. And how encouraging he is of me. I can't imagine a better man. And what about your parents? How do they feel? I pause. They are worried for me. The professor smirks 
and there are grunts and laughter behind me. When class is over, I stay until the room is empty. George and I have been together for six months, and he's been angry with me twice. The first one, we already laugh about it. After pictures of my boarding house appeared in the Illinois State University's newspaper as an example of the slum conditions that college students live in, I found a new place. George has a car, so he offers to help me move. On moving day, he walks in, and I am reading. Books are still on the shelves, clothes are in the closet, Pictures and posters are on the walls. You aren't packed? I thought we could just throw this stuff in the car. He looks at my dresser with my china dog collection. These will break. I'll roll them in towels and clothes. George unplugs my record player and wraps it in a sheet from my bed. For the next seven hours, all I hear from him are sighs. My chest feels tight. My stomach hurts. I can't look at him. I don't want to see the look on his face. This doesn't seem like a big problem, but his silence says it is. Maybe he's been thinking he asked me to marry him too quick. Maybe he wishes he hadn't, and now he's mad enough to say it. On the third and last trip to the new place, I say I'm sorry. I didn't think I had this much stuff. I look out the window and hold back tears. I hear another sigh, then a laugh and feel the warmth of his hand on mine. Next time, I'll bring you boxes. We will never laugh about my second mistake. A friend I work with at the crisis center is getting married and she wants me to come to her wedding. Her father is a racist and will cause a scene if George is there. The wedding is in a quaint country church and I will need a ride to get there. I tell her I can't go since George is the only person I know with a car. She begs me to find a way. I explain the situation to George and he offers to take me if that's what I want. I thank him for understanding. The day of the wedding, George picks me up. He has the radio on, and I read him the directions. We see the church. He drives past and pulls over a block away. I take George's hand, and he lets me. We listen to a couple more songs. Well, I guess I better go. George nods. I won't be long. I'll just stay for the ceremony. I get out of the car and turn back to wave, but he isn't looking at me. There are no seats left, so I find a place to stand. I've already missed the bridesmaids. The smells of perfume and sweat make me lightheaded. My friend enters with her father, and the organ begins the wedding march. The bouquet she holds quivers, and her father whispers something that makes her smile. They walk past me and down the aisle. I am so far away, I am not going to see or hear anything. I don't want to be here. I shouldn't be here. 
No real friend would have asked me to do this, but I should have refused. I slip out during the soloist singing, We've Only Just Begun. George is gone. I stand where he parked and hope he will come back. If I were him, I'd make me walk home. In a few minutes, his car comes into view. He stares ahead as I climb in, and he won't look at me. I shouldn't have gone. He says, you have no idea how this makes me feel. I can't explain it to you. Saying I'm sorry isn't enough. Promising I'll never do anything like this again won't erase the pain. But after a long silence, he reaches for my hand. Do you think I'm prejudiced? I asked George the question I have wanted to ask my black friends, but it never felt okay to ask. Maybe it still isn't, but I need to know what he thinks. George doesn't answer. The long silence stings. If he didn't think I was prejudiced, he would have laughed and said, No, of course not. How could you ever wonder about that? That's what I wanted him to say. But his face is sad and thoughtful. I wish I could snatch the question back. I don't want to hear the answer. He finally says, If you weren't concerned about it, you wouldn't ask. I try to hold back the tears, but I can't. He's right. There are words and thoughts and images in my head I don't want. I stuff them down so far I can almost forget they are there until they escape without warning. I ask, If you think I am prejudiced, how can you marry me? George wipes my tears with his sleeve. Because you care. Sharon, that is so intense. There is so much going on in this section. Is it okay if I ask you a few more questions? Sure. Okay. In your class, in your sociology class, you mentioned Jonas. Can yes. you tell us who he is? Uh, he was someone that I had, I, w- I would say, an unfortunate situation with. Um, it was college. Uh, date rape is very common. It was that kind of situation, though it was not an actual rape, but it was an, an assault that was... Um, um, changed a lot of things for me in my life. Yeah, I can imagine. How is it to write about it and speak about it publicly? It is now a healing for me. Um, it was. It's not easy. It was not easy to write about when I started writing about it. I was trying to think, how do I do this memoir without talking about that? And it felt. I I couldn't. I tried, and I couldn't. Sometimes the writing just pulls you in, and and you just have to, and it was actually um, a healing thing for me to write about it. So it's it's actually, it's okay, even though it feels odd to know that 
yeah, it's in there and everyone will know that, but that's, okay. that's okay. From this attack that happened mm-hmm. to you by a man who was black, mm-hmm. what kind of an aura comes with that in terms of racism and... Right. Okay. Well, one of the things that happened, and of course, when something like this happens, there's lots of choices that you are faced with. Do I tell anyone? Do I report this? And at the time, I made the decision not to report it. And as in any decision, there's lots of reasons why. I did not want to tell my parents what had happened. I was embarrassed about what had happened. I had to work through the um, my fault about what happened. But I also knew at this time for a black man to be accused of sexually assaulting a white woman was the kind of thing that could blow up situations, mm-hmm. and I saw that. And I did not want to be the cause of that. That would be the last thing I would want to have happen because to me this had nothing to do with race. This was, this was violence. This was not about that. And I, I know that there are people that have even read this part of the memoir that have said, so, so you were assaulted by a black man. Why, why would you continue to be open to being with another black man? Which is one of those things that I have to remind people that, mm-hmm. you know, this is about human beings. And so if I had been assaulted by a man, does that mean that I no longer am going to be attracted to men? If I was a white woman assaulted by a white man, would our assumption then be that she would never be with another white man again? Mm-hmm. You know, that it's, it's nothing like that. And, of course, George is so much different and beyond anything that this person was that there, there's just there is no comparison to them. So so that's basically my answer. But I know that, that that question, it would have come up in that sociology class if I had admitted to that. Mm-hmm. And, and it certainly is something that um, I may be questioned on, even if people, when and if this is ever published and people read it, I'm sure that that, that could come up. Okay. Um, well, thank you for sharing it on the sure. podcast. Sure. Um, also in this time, you are in sociology class, you are a sociology major. Tell us about that. (laughs) I chose sociology as a major mostly because it was something I had a little bit of interest in that I wanted to be a social worker and help people. Mm -hmm. But what I really wanted to do was be an actress and be famous and have lots of money so that eventually I could just give money to people and help them. But I didn't feel like I could tell my parents that, and they were paying for my college. So I decided, well, I'll just, I'll do sociology, but then on the side, or maybe as a minor, I'll be a theater major. So I was, I was really wanting to be a theater major. I am a theater major. Jesse's a theater major. Yes. Your husband is a theater major. Yes. It's the best major. It's the best major yeah. ever. My son was one, too. Oh, yes, wonderful. Of course. Wonderful. Um, but you are an honorary theater major. Yes. Thank and you. What did you do with your education? I, What I really did with my education was try a lot of different things. Mm-hmm. At a certain point, I, I left school. I went to... Um, 
work at a nursing home at one point. Um, I became a nurse's aide. I tried some things out um, as a nurse's aide. I was a a psychiatric aide at one point. Um, Then I started working in schools to see if I could do something with that. I ended up, I just kept trying different things out, but I fell into a mime troupe. Mm -hmm. And then I studied mime. And then when that became something that was associated with schools, when I was working in schools and being um, first a reading coach, but then turning that into drama Mm -hmm. because we act out stories and use that. Then I went back to school to do more with education. But um, I really have been more of an artist in residence type of person. I never wanted to get a teacher's certificate because Mm -hmm. I didn't want to be tempted to have a steady job like that. Okay. So, yeah. Of writing, acting, Mm -hmm. miming, and then you can even factor in mothering being a sister or being a wife, what is your favorite way to express yourself? Now it is through writing, for Mm -hmm. sure. But that helps me form my thoughts and be able to speak. Um, I found that when I write, that's when I actually know what I think. And so that's, at this point, become my favorite way. And with mime, I loved mime. I really, I loved it when I was doing it. But there were stories that I couldn't tell in mine. For instance, you're at the essence, you're telling the essence of something. Mm-hmm. So I could show, even by myself, I could show that I fell in love with someone and I love them. So I could I could portray my love for George in mine. But the audience is going to imagine whoever they want to that I'm with. They're they're what they are not going to be able to imagine is that this is a man who is of African American he's an African American man. Mm-hmm. And the nuances of that and the those kinds of details that really flesh out a story, I could not tell in mime language, but I could tell that in words. But the mime work that was about essence is what informs the way in which I write, mm-hmm. I think, is what I figured out. Because people that read my writing often do comment on the, the fewness of words or the, that kind of thing. And I, I feel that that is really from mime because it, feels to, it still feels a little bit like cheating to use real words <laughs> to tell stories. <laughs> so, you know, see. so yeah, that's because I was doing mime for 30, 30 years. Okay. Yeah. Well, let's move into your writing process. Mm -hmm. Uh, Our last author was Dan Klestad, who is a radio host, and he Mm -hmm. says he writes for the ear. Mm. You were a mime for 30 years, and you've been writing for many, many years. What do you write for? Because you mentioned the sparseness Mm -hmm. of words. The sparseness of words. Um, I think I write for the heart. I write for the heart. I really... want to connect hearts. I feel that that is the way that we as human beings know who we are and who each other is. And I know I want people to laugh and and perhaps tear up a little bit. I mean, and that's the mime work I used to do. Um, so I, I, I love Charlie Chaplin because I always felt he was funny, but oh my goodness, he could just bring you in 
and feel this the angst that he would have about you know someone that he loved that <laughs> didn't love him. I I just adored Charlie Chaplin, and so um, that was a bit of my mime work, and I feel like that is a part of the writing. But it's because that's who we are as human beings. We laugh and we cry. Mm-hmm. And I feel that that's an important um, important expression to be willing to give. So that's, I think, that work. Okay. Who would you like to thank or mention sure. as writing mentors or coaches? Mm-hmm. What would you speak to the writing community? Yes. Because you know a lot of people. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, yes, and the very the person that has been the most influential in terms of the writing itself is uh, my writing coach, and uh, who has become my very dear friend, Judy Bridges, um, Judy Redbird Bridges. Mm-hmm. She lives in Milwaukee, and I I had started actually with a writing group called um, Open Salon, which was online blogs. And that's how I started. And then after about a year of that, I really felt that I needed more. And through um, various things, I, I discovered Judy did these workshops called Shut Up and Write. And I love the title. I mean, Shut Up and Write. <laughs> <laughs> so I managed to get into one of her workshops and then managed to get a whole week with her at this incredible place called The Clearing, which is up in Door County. And from that, these friendships developed. I mean, for one thing, Judy is the most intuitive teacher I have ever met. She gives each person what they need. And she doesn't even, I think, know exactly how she does it. But she was the one, for instance, that helped me to understand that with a memoir, I could write in present tense. I assumed it all had to be in past tense because it happened in the past. Mm -hmm. And she just gave us this little exercise of using the senses and saying, step into this moment. And if you want it to be emotionally impactful, which, of course, yeah, I did, take it into present tense and see how that feels. Mm -hmm. And so then I had to rewrite everything I had written so far. (laughs) But she was also the one that said, you've got all these different stories, you know, about being a Baha'i, being a mime, being a mother. What is it that scratches at you? And as soon as she said that, I knew it was my marriage to George, that that was what was the most important thing that I wanted and needed to write about. Mm-hmm. And so I give I give so much love and credit to Judy, and from her and from these little writing groups, and now I'm a member of uh, a local group called Shaba Moko, mm-hmm. which um, you, Connie, are a part of as I well. I've heard of it. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we just made up that name using our, <laughs> Connie, I think you made up our name using our, using our names. Um, also a woman space. Mm-hmm. And in each of these groups, the incredible feedback that we get that helps the writing, mm-hmm. because you have to be willing to listen to what is not working. I mean, you put it out there and you think you're saying it and then someone goes, I did not understand that. It sounded beautiful, 
didn't didn't get that. Mm-hmm. I mean, you have to be. I think if you want to improve your writing, you have to be willing to do that. But you also have to have a trust in the group, and it's so important that the facilitator of that makes sure that that happens. Because you know, as artists, we are so worried and scared about what other people think, and we can have very tender hearts, and it, we're sensitive folks. I mean, so. It's important that we are in safe environments, but that conundrum that you can't grow without the feedback. I agree. And so getting that feedback has been essential. But it's also meant that in a really short time, I have people that I consider dear friends because I know what's going on in their heads and their hearts, and they know what's going on in mine. And it's pretty amazing. Okay. Yeah. Well, we have to wrap up because we have to get ready for Mr. George Davis. Yes, you do. Is there anything else you would like to say? Just thank you, Connie and Jesse. This really has been um, a wonderful experience for me. I was nervous about this, and you made it painless. Oh. Almost. Painless. Almost. <laughs> she said almost. Almost, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you. Come back. Sure. Okay, it's time for our bonus interview. Right here in the Shumway studio, standing right next to me, is Mr. George Davis. Hello, sir. Good evening. (laughs) Welcome to the Shumway studio. I'm so glad you are here. It's my pleasure. Is it okay if I ask you a few questions about your own journey into your interracial marriage? Sure. Okay, let's go way back in time. Before you met Sharon, how did you feel about interracial dating? Well, um, it's kind of a complicated uh, subject, but uh, you know, my first thoughts about interracial dating probably uh, went back to when I was 16 years old, and uh, you know, being a, a, a teenager. Um, in the 60s uh, when there was a lot going on in the country about issues of race and the civil rights movement was really at its peak. Uh, I remember uh, actually uh, being pretty shy about dating generally uh, at that age still. And um, I remember, though, the first time I actually had a crush on or was attracted to a girl who was uh, white, um, having a, a very clear understanding that it really was not okay for me to ever go to her house and to ever consider talking to her outside of school. And I remember writing about that in my journal at the time and just, you know, it's, it's a sense that there was a set of uh, rules or a, a barrier there that no one had ever spoken about but that I knew was real. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it at some kind of a social level that I didn't really even question, but it's, I had never really thought about it up until that point. But uh, that was probably my earliest thoughts about it. But then as I, you know, completed high school and went on to college, um, I don't think I thought about it so much uh, in, in beyond that point, but then it just turned out that uh, I had a lot of friends of, of, of a lot of different backgrounds uh, and and as uh, you know, as I became involved in campus life and at a predominantly uh, college with predominantly you know white students, uh, although it was a small campus, uh, there was still a, a significant group uh, number of African American uh, young people at the college, and 
I certainly had friends of, you know, a variety of different backgrounds, as I said, but uh, found myself um, really um, just hanging out with people that I think probably had a common outlook on life uh, and a lot to do with the influence in my life of the Baha'i faith and Mm -hmm. the openness to uh, respecting and honoring different cultures and different people. Uh, but uh, I had friends, and I never really did really a lot of what you would call dating. In fact, really virtually no dating in the traditional sense at all of asking someone out that I didn't know or that I really, uh, and and mostly I had friends that I hung out with. um, And, uh, you know, Sharon and I didn't really meet until I had already graduated from undergrad school, so um, uh, but so I didn't really give, I think, a lot of, uh, you know, thought to the question of inter- interracial marriage or, uh, you know, whether it was something that was okay or not okay. I remember uh, I actually did have um, a, uh, a friend who I was interested in, and we had actually talked about marriage and really, you know, thought we might be married um, at one point. And, uh, and she was white, but then she left and went overseas and spent some time, you know, in France. And uh, we really did never become really kind of romantically connected, you know, as, after that point uh, for a variety of different reasons. Um, and it was really after that that, um, that, that I think I, I really truly got to know Sharon. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't really, uh, you know, it was kind of, a series of things that happened over time that were sort of, sort of, um, you know, just leading up to a point where by the time I met Sharon, it was kind of a non-issue for me in terms of the idea that I would marry someone who uh, wasn't uh, African American or black, and um, it was really probably more the question of how our families would would deal with it or respond to it than it was really for me personally a. An issue. I, I guess I got over a long time ago the idea of being of seeing it as a, a personal conflict. But I guess if you know if I had, it probably would have been something I wouldn't have been open to. Mm-hmm. So, how did you contribute to the greater good and create a sense of place early on in your marriage? And how do you do it now? Well, uh, I, I don't know. It's hard to say. I, I think it's hard to assess one's own contributions. I think you can only assess your uh, intent and your actions um, and, uh, and what you're trying to do. Uh, I guess from, uh, in terms of, uh, of our marriage, uh, I think the first thing we, we uh, look to, and I, I certainly I look to about what's been so important about our marriage is uh, that we, um, we came to see each other as having individuality uh, at at a very early stage that we that we understood we had been together for almost five years before we got married in the sense of really knowing that we wanted to be married but 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 he really it took a while for us to really be able to to actually be married um, and I know Sharon talks about that in her writing and and some of the things that you know led up to that. But one of the things we came to respect is is to re, is to really understand who each other were are as individual people, and and to really uh, in no way try to 
make the other person um, be uh, something else other than who they were. But because we shared a common set and do share a common set of values and beliefs about uh, the world and about our place in it, then it allows us to really, uh, you know, uh, respect what each of us, you know, brings to whatever service or whatever contribution we're, we're making and also to appreciate the other and to really uh, kind of see each other as sort of adding to what it is that we have and helping us with, helping with, uh, us with uh, sort of rounding out our perspective. As we, especially when you look at the issue of, uh, the, there's a concept in the in the Baha'i teachings called unity and diversity, and the idea is that unity is not necessarily everybody being the same. In fact, the best and strongest unity is is a unity in which diverse personalities and characteristics and qualities and cultural perspectives uh, can contribute to a, a stronger whole than than would be possible uh, if they were separate. And so I think that's what we've experienced in our marriage is that be, because of how different our cultural references uh, are, were when, in terms of our upbringing, we uh, we've really uh, have been able to contribute to uh, each other's uh, uh, and strengthen each other's uh, contributions in some ways. So that, I know that's all sounds very esoteric, but I think what we uh, what we're doing now. Uh, we've now that we've kind of had some years of, of practice, so to speak, is um, is really looking at how our influence on our, our children and our grandchildren and on other young people, um, you know, uh, will be able to sort of continue that that legacy of uh, sort of mutual respect, appreciation, and 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 really uh, the strength that comes from uh, you know embracing diversity. Uh, and so uh, when we were raising our own kids, you know, we focused on uh, having them first and foremost be who they were as individual people and understanding, you know, uh, what they had to contribute to the world and seeing and seeing themselves as valuable, you know, as, as, as having an, a valuable role to play. Uh, and um, that... Uh, they and they each had to work through their own uh, particular uh, challenges with how they related to the questions of race, mm-hmm. and they they did it in different ways. Uh, they didn't necessarily have the same way in which they navigated those questions uh, as Sharon and I didn't have. You know, I remember back, you know, go, kind of going back a little bit, that one of the challenges of being in an interracial relationship, you know, it, it, if one is especially avoiding being Pollyanna about it, is that you do have to deal with the social reality of the world around you that isn't, you know, doesn't necessarily always, uh, uh, you know, appreciate, respect, or, or, or even think what you're doing is a good thing. Uh, that certainly has become less so on a on a social level, just because interracial uh, marriage dating, so called, uh, has become much more acceptable than it was, you know, when we first uh, got to know each other. Uh, but nonetheless, we we uh, we also uh, had to deal with the fact that some people, uh, both black and white, would not necessarily appreciate. Uh, respect or embrace the choice that we made and that had to be okay with us 
Uh, and that, I think, uh, w- even though it's become less social pressure, we we don't really, uh, I think we kind of reached the point where uh, we're, we don't relate to each other and, you know, and, 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 and never did even from the, by the time we got married as an interracial couple, but basically as, you know, George and Sharon mm-hmm. <laughs> that uh, happens to be, uh, you know, from different cultural, racial uh, backgrounds, frames of reference. And that uh, it kind of gave us a, a certain freedom. But also I think uh, to a certain extent we had to be willing to uh, accept and live with the, uh, the, the both um, – Mild and 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 in very degrees of stronger disapproval uh, by people that we sometimes were in our family, as well as people that were not in our family, uh, and not and and not have that be an issue for our relationship or our uh, our friendship. And where, I think that you, you know, that? where did you learn to not let that be an issue? Did somebody give you that advice, or did you figure it out for yourselves? No, I, I don't know. It's it's a good question. I don't know how you really teach someone that. I think that you know, in my own family, you know, even though uh, my parents, you know, uh, were okay with my marriage to Sharon, you know, from uh, pretty much relatively early on. My my mom especially made it clear that it wasn't the choice that she would have made for me. But one of the things that my mom was always um, really, uh, you know, exceptional at is is really protecting and guarding me and my brother's uh, independence of thought and expression. And so that was never uh, a conflict for me. It wasn't whether she approved of it or in the sense of this is really, I think this is great that you're marrying someone of a different race. That wasn't really her attitude. In fact, she said, I just assumed that you married someone who was black. And, you know, that really wasn't the choice I would have made for you. But at the same time, it was never a personal conflict or uh, uh, something that she in, in any way, uh, you know, you know, continue to uh, have a, a, an issue with. And in fact, you know, she and Sharon became friends and she really, you know, embraced and accepted Sharon, you know, as her daughter-in-law. And I think, you know, in, in many ways, you know, my perspective is that Sharon's parents, you know, kind of had a similar response, although, you know, there's uh, they were a little bit more adamant, uh, you know, uh, in terms of their not accepting it because of the concern they had about how, we were going to be received by society. Um, mm-hmm. And in many ways, it it kind of surfaced their own discomfort, their own personal discomfort, because uh, it became a thing of, I don't want people to think about you what I think other people think about racial, interracial couples and, and all of those kind of very kind of complex emotional things. Um, my mom had some of that too, because her experience with interracial, uh, you know, marriages or couples had been minimal, but it, it had not necessarily been uh, experiences that she felt good about from the people that she, the few experiences that she had. So I think in both cases, because of how segregated society was up until that point, especially, it wasn't a whole lot uh, to go on except for the the fact that there was a pretty clear wall of separation between socially how black and white people lived. So realizing that we were going to, we were going into that, it, it, it was, I guess for us, our, um, 
our attraction and love for each other um, and, and uh, how we, and the kind of um, sense of being together uh, from the very early time we knew each other was a, such a strong thing that it was it was secondary to us. I don't know, again, I think in both cases, our parents probably taught us certain qualities of independence of thought and independence of expression and, and that they never would have guessed or would have you know, necessarily thought would lead to us choosing to marry someone of a different you know, race or cultural background because it wasn't just not in their world. But, I, but on the other hand, I think certainly those were some of the qualities that uh, also allowed us to really be able to think for ourselves and to make our, our own choices. And I think, you know, in some ways, um, our, both of our parents uh, went through something similar, even though it wasn't necessarily around race in their own families. It's probably a, a theme that is pretty universal, you know, where each generation there is a a challenge or an obstacle when you decide to strike out and, and take a course that is different than your family of birth has taken or it's, or it's never been charted before, it's going to cause a certain amount of trepidation and fear. And so I think that is kind of a universal theme in some ways. But I'm not sure if it was anything specific that I can point to that says, ah, because of that. Um, and certainly I had friends, uh, you know, in, in college and um, in high school uh, who would never have considered that choice um, because it would have just been outside of their comfort zone, you know, to the point where they would have been so uncomfortable with it. And I, in fact, I did certainly experience that, you know, with a number of friends I had that they would just simply would not want to expose themselves to that um to that discomfort, you know, but I don't know beyond that. It's, you know, it's a hard thing to explain. <laughs> I, I understand. I, I yeah. love how much you're sharing. So I really want to say thank you. Oh, I know. I'm talking way too much. No, you you're know? not. <laughs> no, there's not enough talking about this. Yeah. I really appreciate that you've come in here and shared this much with yeah. us. Well, you know, one of the things too, that, you know, uh, uh, to realize for, especially for, uh, for people of African-American background that, Talking about uh, uh, issues of race, um, uh, especially uh, outside of, you know, uh, talking with other people that are African-American, is still, um, it's for the most part something that uh, is not an easy thing to do because there is uh, such a history of misunderstanding and a sense of uh, that I cannot, how do I convey uh, a uh, a perspective and an experience that uh, that is not shared by the other person. So the tendency is just to say, you know, and there's been so much, uh, you know, injustice and and um, uh, tragic, uh, you know, oppression that has occurred, you know, systematically over such a long period of time. That I, I don't think it's an easy thing uh, generally for people to talk about. But I think all of that also goes with uh, why it's so difficult for, you know, sometimes to, to enter into this topic of talking about interracial uh, marriage because it becomes one more uh, thing that is that has a lot of emotional uh, charge to it. And, and I think, uh, I don't know, I can't speak for how, you know, Sharon or other people who, you know, come from more of a 
a, a white mainstream cultural perspective uh, look at it, but I but I know that that is something that is not an easy uh, thing to 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 just simply sort of sort of bear your you know bear your soul about because it comes with a lot of emotional baggage. But I think issues of race in this country do anyway, and I think it's uh, it's one of the uh, still unhealed uh, you know wounds of our uh, of our country and of uh, of, of our people as a as a as a culture that uh, we have we have such huge um, uh, fears and uh, strong uh, in, internalized feelings about issues of race that uh, it's it, it it's very very difficult to have uh, you might say constructive uh, meaningful and and really um, helpful conversations about it and so I think most people avoid it okay. um, so uh, there's and, and, I, and I don't I don't think you can force it because I think people have to be willing to enter into it for whatever reason and in a way and but hopefully if one is willing you know and you find people who at least are willing to, to entertain this the to talk about it in a way that's you know it, it, on the basis of trying to understand or attempting to understand, I think it's always worth the effort. I agree. Is there anything you would like to say to Sharon about Sharon? <laughs> I, you know, I, I can't really, you know, uh, talk publicly about, you know, a lot of my feelings about uh, Sharon. I mean, we've, uh, you know, we've been together for so long that, um, you know, uh, trying to even put in words um, how you feel about someone uh, that you spent, you know, a lifetime with. And, you know, in, in our case, 41 years of marriage and, you know, and then almost five years before that, um, you know, uh, how do you really actually capture that in words? Um, there's a there's a quote in uh, one of the Baha'i writings uh, uh, where that is one that is devoted to the, to the theme of love. And, um, and one of the quotes in this particular uh, uh, you know, writing uh, says, only heart to heart can speak the bliss of mystic knowers, for no messenger can bear it and no missive tell it. For I am weak with silence on many a matter. My speech could not reckon them, and my words would fall short. Thank you. Thank you. Guilty Pleasures was made possible by Rockford Writers Guild, the Shumway, Rockford Area Arts Council, and you, our listeners. Remember to let us know what you think of Guilty Pleasures by rating us on iTunes, emailing editor at rockfordwritersguild.org, or joining us on social media. Find us on Facebook under Rockford Writers Guild. We are on Twitter and Instagram at Guilty Pleasures. This is your producer, Jesse Coots. Thank you for listening. Now go write. Hey, Dan, what are you doing? Checking my calendar. Looks like a big day is coming up. Which one? Saturday, March 3rd. That's National I Want You To Be Happy Day. That shouldn't be too hard. 
The Midwest is beautiful in March. All that brown, all that gray. Not to mention the fact that the Guilty Pleasures podcast is featuring a new author. Who? Dan Libman. The Dan Libman? Yes, he'll be reading from his book, Married But Looking, and will share new work, too. Oh, that's enough to make me happy for the whole month of March. Why are you crying, Connie? Because I'm so happy. Get happy with the new Guilty Pleasures podcast. Listen for free at any time. Until then, go right. <laughs>